Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Okay, I think for time we won't <coughs> feedback, although feel free to grab me um, in a break if you want to ask about any specific. Just for interest though, do those kind of principles, those questions begin to make Old Testament law a little bit easier to think what might we do with this? Brilliant. Questions are always helpful, aren't they? Good, good. We'll probably see a bit more um, some examples of how it handles in a moment. We're going to go into Leviticus, but I forgot the map. If you go back to your page of the map, just um, <coughs> can be kind of useful to get. There's a lot of geography in these books. Kind of hard to see on there, so it might be easier to look at this. And hopefully, it's numbered <coughs> on the printout as well. Number one, Egypt obviously is where the guys are in slavery in the book of Exodus. They come down and cross the Red Sea. So we're going to see Exodus. Marah and Elim are two stories in Exodus. The book of Leviticus takes place at Mount Sinai, which is where the second half of Exodus is, where the covenant is made, they build the tabernacle and stuff, God turns up, and all of Leviticus actually happens there. And then most of the journey you see on that map is what happens in the book of Numbers. So from um, Sinai, they go up to Kadesh Barnea, which is where they spend the majority of Numbers, those 40 years wandering in the desert that we'll look at. You can see from there, number five, these spies go up into Canaan, into the Promised Land, and we'll get to that story, which is really pivotal as well in um, the book, because that's the basis in which the people end up wandering around for such a long time. And then you can see how the line kind of goes up and then down and round Edom, because there's a story in Numbers where the king of Edom is asked, will you let us go through to get to where we're going? And he says, no, so they have to take the long way round. It's all a very roundabout journey up. And then you begin as they come along that kind of, what is that, my geography is awful, the east side there, you get the various battles that you read about, again, in Numbers and are retold in Deuteronomy. And so you can see some of them mentioned there, of Jahaz, Heshbon, Edray. They go right up and they come down, number 12, that is the plains of the... Um, plains of Moab. So they're kind of standing, looking over the Jordan River, looking over to the Promised Land. And some of the tribes, and then the numbers actually settle there, a couple of them, Reuben and Gad, I think it is, and then the rest will go over and take, to, uh, take the Promised Land of Canaan. I just find it helpful sometimes to look at maps because there's so many places in these books and so much journeying. And for most of us, that part of the world maybe we might not know very well. So it's helpful to have a bit of an idea of the journey that's going on. Let's talk about Leviticus. I think it's the most unfairly maligned and hated book of the Bible. And, but let's be honest, there are some good reasons for it. We've talked already about some of the difficulties we have with this book. This book is also just odd, let's be honest. My favourite oddity comes in Leviticus 14. Okay, so there's a ceremony involving two birds. You take two live birds, you kill one, and you pour out its blood, and you mix its blood with some water. You take the other bird, who is still alive, and you dip it in the blood water mix of this other bird, and then you use the live bird, covered in blood and water, to throw that stuff over someone. As this poor little bird has just seen his mate be killed, see the blood be poured out, has been bathed in the blood of his friend, and now he's being thrown about. Understandably, we read that and we think, what on earth is going on? Why did anyone do that full stop? Why on earth is that in the Bible? To us, it just sounds odd, and really, it kind of sounds like something like the horrible histories. You're familiar with those book series for kids where they draw out all the weirdest and most disgusting bits of history to try and make it engaging and exciting. It was books when I was a kid. I think it's now a TV series as well. Leviticus is like the horrible histories of the Bible. That's a, a way you can conceive of it and think of it. And so you might think, well, why am I so excited about it? Why do I think Leviticus is so good? I think it's a real hidden gem of the Bible. There's so much gold to be mined from it which we easily overlook because we think of it as odd, insignificant, worthless, whatever. We think of it as being like this old, odd artifact, artifact dug up from the desert somewhere which is completely pointless and not worth our attention. But actually, rather than being like this odd, worthless artifact found in the desert, 
actually it's more like one of those things with Antiques Roadshow, where people bring this thing that looks really mundane, normal, we all think, what's the point in that? And actually it turns out to be of huge, huge value. And I hope to show you a bit of why Leviticus is so valuable, so relevant to us today. What's the key message of Leviticus? What's it doing? We've kind of mentioned it a little bit already. It's really answering one key question. A fundamental question that actually is key for every person, the question of how can sinful people live with a holy God? And we can see that by the way it sits in the Bible story. You remember just before this book, God has come to dwell in the tabernacle to live amongst them. And we're told at that point that God comes to dwell in the tent, and then because of that, Moses can't go in. Exodus 40, 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's turn up, but now it means Moses can't go in the tabernacle. And so the very first of Leviticus has God speaking to Moses, but speaking to him from the tent of meeting. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, i.e. God's inside, Moses can't go in, he had to be outside, so God had to speak from the tent. You go through Leviticus, you reach the very first verse of the next book of the Bible, Numbers, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. What does Leviticus do? It means that where previously people are separated from God, now people can come into where God is. Start of the book, Moses can't come into the place because God's dwelling there. Start of the next book, Moses is right there where God is dwelling. This book is about how sinful people can come and dwell with God. And Moses being in the tent is a really big deal. You might think all that's happened is he's gone through a bit of canvas or, well, a bit of goat skin, or I guess it would have been. What's the big deal there? The thing you've got to remember is this tent is modelled on Eden. I don't know if you talked about that when you talked about Exodus. The instructions given for what this special tent for God to dwell in were going to be like is all pointing back to Eden. There are things showing us this is a little picture of that original plan of God and humans dwelling together. For Moses to go into this tent isn't just a guy walking into a tent, it's a picture of humans and God once again being in intimate relationship. It's a picture of the restoration of how things were always meant to be, what God had always planned and always wanted. It's hugely, hugely significant. And so this book is all about how can humans begin to get back to what God had originally planned with him and them living together. And notice also, God takes the initiative. The vast majority of Leviticus is God speaking to the people and giving these instructions, these directions, these guides for how they can live with him in relationship with him. In a sense, God starts the conversation. And so what does that reveal? Well, it reveals that God wants us. This book is about how can God and humans dwell together. And that's not because Moses goes, oh, please, God, please let us in. Please let us dwell with you. Or the people do something or try and earn something from God. How is it this book lets God and humans dwell together? It's because God takes the initiative. God starts the conversation. God tells them how they can be restored to the kind of relationship they were made for. This book reveals God's heart and it reveals that God wants us. Leviticus doesn't reveal a God who's harsh or stingy or controlling, as people so often think. It reveals a God who is love and who longs for all people to experience fullness of life through intimate relationship with him. And so he makes a way for that to be possible, even though, actually, it's never what we deserve. And so I think if you ever want some encouragement from Scripture, Leviticus is the place to go. Because Leviticus reminds you God wants you. He wants you to be in intimate relationship with him. And that's the key message. And I think you can actually see that when we look at the uh, kind of structure of the story of Leviticus. Leviticus, in a sense, has a pyramid structure, a kind of row up and a row down with the middle chapter, chapter 16, being the center point, the tip of the pyramid. Chapter 16 is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a yearly annual event where the people would confess their sins and they would engage in rituals that God had commanded them to perform on that day. And in doing those rituals, they are trusting in God's promise to forgive them and to cleanse them so that they could live in relationship with him. And the very high point, the pinnacle of the day, was the moment when the high priest, a man who represented all of the people, would go into that tent, go right into the deepest part of the tent, the Holy of the Holies, where God dwelt. 
And he would go in there, in a sense, representing the people. He had all these things of 12, 12 gems and stuff, and his headdressing on his um, uh, breastplate, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He was taking them before God. This day was a picture of the relationship between God and humans that God had initiated and God had uh, made possible. That moment, once a year, is kind of the very pinnacle of humans and God dwelling together in intimate relationship. And so it's the pinnacle of the book. And actually, many people, I think, rightly argue, it's the very pinnacle and the middle point of the whole of the Torah, the first five books. The risk is the middle book of the five, it's the middle chapter. What's the Torah all about? That moment where God and humans get to dwell together intimately. And so that's the tip of the pyramid. And the journey up the pyramid, chapters 1 to 15, are all around how that relationship can happen. The key question is the question we've talked about, how can sinful people live with a holy God? And there's various things that these chapters tell us about how that can be possible. The first seven chapters tell us about sacrifices. Sacrifices are key to that relationship. These chapters are kind of like um, a menu or an instruction manual on how the Israelites could worship God and how they could deal with their sin, that imperfection that separated them from God. And there are five different types of sacrifice outlined in these chapters, each of which has a particular different focus and a particular um, kind of meaning and purpose behind them. But all of them are about actually how do we come, how do we worship God, but also how do we deal with our imperfections in order to be able to come to God. And that's where, as I mentioned in passing earlier, blood becomes really important. And Leviticus talks about blood as this ransom price, the price that you can pay to, uh, uh, to, to pay the price for the debt that's over you. So atonement is about paying a ransom in the sense God says, I would accept the blood and the life of this animal in place of, instead of, your life and your blood. You can pay this price as a substitute. And that's what's at the core of the sacrifices. After sacrifices, we have priesthood, chapters 8 to 10, because the priests were needed to help the people to make the sacrifices. And the priests are people who are um, set apart, they are holy, they are consecrated as set apart and holy, designated to this task, so they could draw near to God and they could be involved in bringing these sacrifices to him. And this little section also includes one of the few stories in Leviticus, the cautionary tale of two priests who are killed when they don't carefully obey his instructions. They show how dangerous it is for sinful humans and the holy God to dwell together and why following what God says in these chapters is so, so important. And in chapters 11 to 15, the final stage of this journey up the pyramid are the ritual purity laws. Probably some things we find most weird and complicated. The laws about things that are clean and unclean, relating to the animals you eat, to bodily fluids, to skin diseases, to mould in your houses and stuff. And we really think, what on earth is going on? What's going on with these things, these uh, rules, is they are a ritual illustration of, so like a kind of a a physical demonstration of a, uh, a deeper principle, the principle being the moral purity needed to draw near to God. So in and of themselves, these things aren't moral issues. As being unclean didn't mean you were sinful. We know that because of the different ways that you deal with them and the different ways that, um, or the fact that atonement isn't talked about in the same way for this. It's not a thing, actually, if you need to, um, that there's guilt for uncleanness. But you couldn't come near to God when you're unclean because he is holy. It's this very visible, uh, tangible, experiential idea of realising I need to be perfect to dwell with the perfect God. And so these laws, which you know, impacted all manner of areas of everyday life, would make you constantly conscious of, am I in a state of cleanness or uncleanness? And actually, it's dangerous for me to come near to God if I'm unclean. So you'd be constantly aware of your need to be clean, being able to dwell near to God, which is teaching you constantly of your need to be perfect, to be with the perfect God. Ritual purity was meant to be an illustration of and to teach people about moral purity. In a sense, the kind of external, quite surface stuff, and it's interesting, it is surface stuff. What are the illnesses that are the issue? Not deep stuff inside, skin stuff, surface stuff, stuff you can see. Things that might make someone look like they were, or would look like they were unwell, it's the surface stuff. It's meant to teach you actually about the deeper thing. It's all an illustration of that. And I think of all modern generations, we might be some of those who can begin to slightly understand this 
You just think about how we understandably in the last, whatever it is, 18 months have become paranoid about cleanness. And actually, am I clean? Am I potentially infected? Am I not? All those kind of things. I think actually the way for many of us have become much more conscious of our need to have good hygiene practices is a tiny glimpse into what would it be like to live under these laws that make you constantly paranoid about that. I always happening a bit, but I've become much more paranoid about touching different surfaces over this time. And you begin to live with that thing of what have I touched and then what have I touched and what's my thing. That kind of sense of constantly being on alert with that is what it would have been like to live under these laws. Constantly alert of am I clean and am I unclean? All of which is meant to teach you actually about the deeper lesson of moral cleanness. <clears throat> Confusing stuff because to us it's just so foreign and so weird, but there's a real purpose. And so you see the division between the principle and the practice. The practice is all this stuff about what's clean, what's not, we can, can't touch, what we have to do to get clean again and stuff. But the principle is to teach us about moral purity, which actually Jesus comes to. Jesus said actually the issue isn't these external things, the issue is the heart. And well, that's when Mark says that Jesus declares all foods clean. Jesus says actually it's the heart that matters, not the external stuff. And so he shows these external things were always meant to teach us about the more important things of the heart. Ritual purity takes us to the pinnacle, the tip of that pyramid, the day of atonement, the yearly ritual where humans and God dwell together in intimate relationship. And then we start the journey down the pyramid. If up the pyramid was how can sinful people and a holy God live together, down the pyramid is more about what happens when sinful people and a holy God are living together. The day of atonement is the picture of that relationship. What happens? What flows out of that? What's the result of that? Well, the first thing is holy living. 18 to 20, all these rules about various areas of life, a particular focus on laws around sex and relationships, around justice and care for the vulnerable. If you read through those chapters, you'll find the aim of those laws is for people to become like God. Be holy, God says, as I am holy. But they're laws that flow out of relationship with God. They're not about entering into relationship with God. That's happened way before when God rescued them out of Egypt, made the covenant with them. It's living that flows out of as a response to relationship with God. You become like the people you spend lots of time with, don't you? God's saying, as you're in relationship with me, you are to become like me. Then chapter 21 to 22, more stuff on priests and on holy things. Again, kind of what flows from them being with God. Instructions on how they're to be holy. They need to be set apart. Instructions of when people can and can't interact with holy things, things dedicated to God, which leads into holy times, chapters 23 to 25. Different events and festivals, the weekly Sabbath, the yearly festivals, other less frequent holy days. Things that flow from their relationship with God and are about reminding them of that relationship, teaching them about that relationship. And then we get chapter 26, the chapter of blessings and curses. The classic thing in covenants, these agreements in the ancient world, was you had these kind of conditions and then these good things that come if you keep the conditions and the bad things that come if you don't. These are the terms, again, of the covenant that God has made with them. If they're obedient to the covenant, there's a reception of blessings. If they're disobedient, actually, there's curses. And if you look at that chapter, the key pinnacle blessing is an intimate relationship with God. And there's language there that's meant to evoke to us again Eden. This whole book is about actually, here's the way you get to go back to Eden, as it were. You get to experience intimate relationship with God. Chapter 27 is an appendix on vows and dedication, which for all my love of Leviticus, I still not worked out quite why it's there, but I'm sure it is important. Reading Leviticus as a Christian, just briefly. That's all great. What about us? We're so much later, we're after Jesus, a radically different time. Leviticus is hugely relevant to us as Christians, but just a few things to point out. One is, it's tackling this question, how can sinful people live with a holy God? And it gives an answer, but actually is only a partial answer. There's still a level of distance between God and humans. You have the priests who are separated from, in a sense, closer, actually, in a sense, to God. Actually, it's only the high priest once a year who actually gets to go right into the place where God himself is dwelling and all of Old Testament history from this point onwards, as we'll see from Numbers onwards, will show us that the sinful, the human heart is just so sinful and too sinful to enable us to maintain good relationship with God. Even when God takes the initiative, tells us how we can dwell with him, 
actually we're unable to live in the way we need to in order to do that. And so as the Bible story continues, the ultimate answer to the question comes in Jesus. Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, his conquering resurrection give us the full and lasting answer to the question, how can sinful people live with a holy God? And actually you'll find when you look at how the New Testament talks about that, Leviticus provides us with kind of the conceptual framework, as in the kind of um, ways of talking and understanding things, which allows us to make sense of the work of Christ. Things about holiness, sacrifice, sacrifice a substitute, atonement through blood, all these kind of things which we know about how the work of Christ works, actually are rooted in the concepts Leviticus introduces. In a sense, without Leviticus, you can't really understand what Jesus has done. So you see that, for example, in how the New Testament book of Hebrews makes lots of use of the concepts of Leviticus to explain what Jesus has done. And then also, Leviticus, this whole vision of what happens when you live in relationship with God is also very true for us. Leviticus says, live in relationship with God and you become like, like him. Be holy as he is holy. That's something that we as Christians are also called to. Peter in 1 Peter explicitly quotes Leviticus in those words of be holy as I, God, am holy. But actually for us, that's made truly possible because of the work of Jesus. That's what we see in the doctrine of sin, because we're freed from the slavery of and the power of sin. Because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we truly can be holy as he is holy, truly can live in that holiness. That's just a little sampling of the many ways that Leviticus is hugely relevant to us as Christians. Why don't we pause, you have a quick five-minute break, feel free to stretch your legs, grab a drink, have a chat, whatever, and a few minutes past ten, we'll come back and we'll look at numbers and Deuteronomy. Okay, I'm sure you, like me, are now thinking, oh, couldn't we have had the whole morning on Leviticus? But there is good stuff in numbers and Deuteronomy as well, so we will go there. In fact, actually, you know, candid confession time, how most people about Leviticus, I feel about numbers. But actually, going back to it to prepare for this, realising there's so much good, actually, um, the core message of Numbers is so helpful and so encouraging to us. Normally, though, Numbers does have a fractionally better reputation than Leviticus. There are still laws we struggle with. There are some censuses, those you know, kind of counting the people we really struggle with. But there are a few stories, which is why most of us find it a little bit of uh, an easier book, including what is often a common classic favourite story of the talking donkey. Um, you might remember is a pop one of this. What's the key message here? Well, two things happen in Numbers, and I think the two things together give us the key message. One thing is the people of Israel prove themselves time and time again continually to be unfaithful to God. That becomes a very common theme. But also what you see is God proves himself time and time again continually to be faithful to his people and to his promises. You've got these two parallel lines of kind of contrasting things, the faithlessness of the people and the faithfulness of God. And I think it's the combination of those two which reveals the message of Numbers. That though humans are utterly sinful and constantly unfaithful to God, God continues to be faithful to his people and his promises. And even just on that, you can begin to hear, wow, this is really good news for us. This is really encouraging. So a bit of an overview, Numbers is kind of a travelogue. We said when we looked at the map that most of that travelling that happens between Sinai and the plains of Moab happens in this book. And so it's a bit like a travelogue in the sense of a kind of narrative about a story and really it's structured around the geography, with the first section being the preparations at Sinai, where they've been for a little while. <clears throat> then a little section, 10, chapters 10 to 12, being the journey up to Kadesh Barnea. And the main bulk of the book being, well, not the main bulk of the book, actually, but the main bulk of the time, chapters 13 to 19, being the 40 years they spend there, to then have in the fifth, fourth section, the journey to the plains of Moab, that bit where he said they had to go up and then down and round Edom and all the way up and those battles. And the last section, when they're in the plains of Moab, preparing to cross over to the promised land. And so we always pick out some of the details of those different sections the first section, the first 10 chapters, is all about the preparations at Sinai. This book opens with a census, which kind of gets us off to a bad start. For many of us, that kind of puts our back up. We think we finally got to the end of Leviticus in our Bibling year or whatever. We get to numbers one, and it's an awful lot of numbers. And you think, oh no, but this is important. What's going on? Why start a book like this? Well, there's two things. 
One is this, is counting the number of men who are there who can go into battle. Because the people are about to set off to conquer the land that God has given them, they need to know who's there. This is preparation for that. But also in the bigger story, what it's doing is it's immediately reminding us of God's faithfulness. Because remember the promise to Abraham was that he'd be the father of a great multitude. And we, as we've gone through the end of Genesis, with kind of the 70 people going down to Egypt, the people coming out of Egypt have gradually seen this multitude grow and grow. Well, here we're actually getting the numbers. Here we're seeing the multitude. This list of numbers actually is a declaration of the faithfulness of God to his promises. And then you get a load of directions for how the camp that the Israelites are going to live in should be set up and how they're to structure themselves when they're marching. And I think I put in the notes these diagrams, you can see how that works. And what you'll notice is with the tent, the camp, the tent of meeting, God's tent, where God dwells, is right at the heart. And so there's a lot of detail in these chapters about how it's all going to be organised and stuff. But the key point is trying to say is God needs to be, is going to be at the very centre. Everything revolves around him. And then when it comes to marching, the tent of meeting is still in the middle. But actually, the Ark of the Covenant, on which God was enthroned between the cherubim, goes at the front. Again, symbolic of God is going to lead them on this journey. We have some stuff about Levites. Now, Levites, that was one of the tribes in um, Israel. And they were people who were set apart to uh, kind of manage and minister at the tent of meeting. They have a kind of various roles. They are security guards in one sense. They're there to stop people getting too close and ultimately getting killed. And they're also caretakers. They do a lot of the cleaning up and different stuff, basically, after all the sacrifices. And from that tribe, a small number are become priests and one at a time become the high priest. And most of the Levites actually were doing these duties. And if you look at the arrangement of the camp, you'll see there's a tent of meeting surrounded by like a layer of Levites and then the other tribes. They say these Levites were there to uh, protect the people, to act as a guard around the camp. And there's also these directions for how you keep the camp where God and the people are dwelling ritually clean and for sacrifices as well. The whole emphasis here is God is living with them, so they need to remain pure and they need to perform proper sacrifices. And you read through these chapters and you think, oh, this is all going really well. They're really obedient to what God says. It's all about God and the people dwelling together. They cleanse the camp, they perform sacrifices, they cleanse the Levites, they celebrate the Passover. It all starts so well. That's how Numbers kind of sets up the story for then the rather almighty fall that begins to unravel in the next section. Because from Sinai, they begin to travel off to Kadesh and things very quickly unravel. Within days, the people are complaining. Complaining about their food as they've done before. And so God gives them meat in the form of quail. But actually, because of their grumbling, because of their lack of faithfulness and their trusting him, also send a plague that kills many. And then to top it off, Moses' brother and sister start rebelling against him and opposing him and basically wanting some of his position. And notice they've just left Sinai. The people are complaining and causing problems. If you think back to Exodus, on their way to Sinai, just before they get there, the people are complaining and causing problems. Remember we said these are selective narratives. Why does Moses choose these stories to include at this point? Why is he bookending what happens at Sinai with the complaining and the faithlessness of the people? He's actually telling us up front, what God has done at Sinai has been great, but the human heart hasn't changed. These people, after God has done this wonderful stuff and made this covenant with them, are just as sinful now as they were before they got there. There's something more that needs to happen. We then get this middle section, 13 to 19, these years at Kadesh Barnea. They're stopping about halfway on their journey to the Promised Land, and they're near the southern border of Canaan. And so Moses thinks, let's send some people to spy out the land, to get an idea of what's going on, so we know how best to move forward with taking the land. Twelve guys go into the land of Canaan, they come back, and when they return, all but two of them are terrified by what they see. And they have no faith that actually they can do what God is saying, that actually the land can become theirs. They decide actually they'd be far better going back to Egypt. So they think, let's get a new leader. Let's go back. Let's deal with this. And God, understandably, is angry against the unfaithfulness of his people. But Moses intercedes on their behalf to rescue them. 
And God agrees not to destroy the nation and he's continuing faithfulness to his promises through these descendants, but he does say that particular generation aren't going to enter the promised land. Because of their rebellion against him, their failure to trust him, they are barred from that land. And so this is why you get suddenly this elongation of the journey, why they spend 40 years wandering, because basically it's just waiting for all of these people to die out. Their children will enter the promised land, they won't. And so we're waiting for a fresh generation to emerge. You have this really kind of bad news, disaster story, the people aren't going to enter the land. And then you get, chapter 15, a load of laws. And if you're reading this through, you kind of think, well, why are we suddenly into law? We just had story, it's really bad news. What's the relevance now of a load of laws? What's striking about these laws is they're all about what's going to happen when the people in the land. They're not so much do this now, they're when you get there, when you settle, here's what's going to happen. And so they're laws and instructions to be followed when the time comes, they're helpful in that way. But also, these laws are showing that they are going to get to the land. God's just said, you as a generation are not going to enter the land, but here's some laws for life in the land, i.e. your kids will get there, this will happen. They're laws, but they're laws that are reminding people of God's faithfulness to his promise. They are, in a sense, themselves, a promise. This still will happen. People will still get to this land. After that, though, another rebellion follows. Some men try to take over the leadership of the people, and it's one of those dramatic stories where God opens up the earth, it swallows them, and they're gone. And God is continuing to affirm that Moses is his chosen leader in calling the people to follow him. They're there for all that time, and then eventually they start that journey up to the plains of Moab. It's more journeying, but journeying in numbers means grumbling and means rebellion. But actually this time, it's Moses who rebels. The people are again complaining. They do start it, I guess. They're complaining about a lack of water. Uh, God tells Moses that he can instruct water to come from a rock. Again, people complaining, being unfaithful. God providing, showing his faithfulness. He says, Moses, you can instruct this rock to bring forth water, and it will. Moses, however, doesn't instruct the rock. He hits the rock, and most awfully, he says that we will give you water. Not God will give you water, we will. He claims to take the place of God, or place himself alongside God, and he fails actually to trust in God by speaking to the rock rather than in anger, I guess, hitting it. And Moses himself there is rebelling against God. And it's on the basis of that, that actually even Moses now will not enter the promised land. He'll take the people right to the border of the promised land, but he himself won't enter it. And then the people, again, rebel. And God sends fiery serpents in a judgment against them, but also uh, offers a means of rescue. This bronze serpent will be lifted up. If they look at the bronze serpent, actually, even with their bit, they will live Again, a picture of the unfaithfulness of God, of the unfaithfulness of the people, the faithfulness of God. And of course, you might hear here the echo to John 3, or 4, 3, when Jesus likens himself to this bronze serpent raised up, whom people will look and live. Until eventually, in the last section, we get to the plains of Moab, just the other side of the River of Jordan, to the uh, promised land. Israel, to be honest, are doing badly. And our expectation at this point might be time and time and time again, Israel have done badly, God has done good to them, but time and time again, they keep doing badly. You kind of begin to think, surely at some point, God is going to run out of patience. You kind of think, I would totally understand if God ran out of patience and did what he said he would do, is start afresh with Moses, get rid of the rest of them or whatever. But instead, what we find is while the people continue to be unfaithful, God reaffirms his promises. That wonderful thing, when we are faithless, God is faithful. As they're coming up the, well, the east kind of side here, um, round these different nations, they pass Moab. The king of Moab is very nervous. He thinks these are lots of people. He's probably heard what's happening in Egypt. He's very nervous about them passing him. So he uh, employs a pagan seer, like a prophet, a uh, religious man, to curse Israel. He thinks, actually, I don't like the idea they're getting too close. I'm going to get this guy to curse them. And so this um, pagan seer, Balaam, or Balaam, is employed to do that. And three times he tries to curse Israel, but three times he ends up actually blessing them. 
And this is really important for multiple reasons. If you look at the blessings that this guy pronounces over Israel, they are a reaffirmation of what was promised to Abraham. Remember, all these stories, they're telling one story. He says that Israel would be blessed and that those who cursed them would be cursed. That's literally exactly what God said to Abraham would happen to him and his descendants. So Balaam says, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? He says, blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. That's literally was exactly what God says in um, Genesis 12. He says that the descendants of Abraham will be a numerous nation who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel. He says Abraham's descendants would live with God in their own kind of Eden-like land. The Lord their God is with them. I will be, they will be my people, I will be their God, God says to Abraham. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, like gardens beside a river. Gardens, rivers, Eden. This is a reaffirmation of those promises. And then there's this promise that one would come who would destroy evil. A star shall come forth out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. That's reminding us of the words about a descendant of Judah that Jacob speaks in his deathbed. Ultimately, it's reminding us of the serpent crusher spoken about in Genesis 3. And so what's going on here is while Israel are rebelling against God time and time again, they're down there in their camp, rebelling against God, up on a hill, a pagan prophet is reiterating and pronouncing God's promises over them. It's a really dramatic scene. You've got the faithlessness of the people down here time and time again. And up here, you've got this declaration of the faithfulness of God over them. It's a huge encouragement, actually. We also get here a second census, which is showing us this fact of the Exodus generation have died out. Their kids now are the ones who are going to take the promised land. They're getting ready to enter the promised land. And also at the end of this uh, book, you have some of the tribes, Reuben and Gad, deciding they're going to settle on the west side, or the notes east side actually is, of the Jordan. And this last, these last chapters have this really clear theme about beginning to think about settling in the land. It's all preparation for the next step of the journey, which again actually is speaking of the faithfulness of God. You've seen their escapades so far and you think really surely God's going to give up, but no, even at the end of the book, God is affirming the fact they're going to go into the land. And so what about for us as Christians reading this today? Well, there's loads of things that can be drawn from it. But one thing is just that those key theological themes are still hugely relevant to us today. Those lessons the book is trying to teach are still relevant to us today. God's faithfulness to his people and his promises, which he's affirmed time and time again in Numbers, well, we know that even more supremely revealed in the work of Christ and our experience of the new covenant. That actually, though you read through the Old Testament story and God's people are continually faithless, humanity is we are continually faithless to God, actually God is faithfully fulfilling his promises, which he's done in sending his son. And actually, we also see that human sinfulness, the human sinfulness, which is the great problem in numbers, is only truly solved by the work of Christ. And again, that's what the Old Testament is meant to do. The Old Testament is kind of meant to depress you. You're meant to get to the end and think, we've still got a major problem. What's going to happen? Actually, what happens is Christ comes and through that comes a new heart that we receive in the new covenant. So the theological themes of numbers are still in a sense true for us, but now wonderfully we get to see them through the lens of the work of Christ. And also you'll find that many of the later books of the Bible use this, uh, these stories of numbers and the episode of the unfaithfulness of the Israelites in the wilderness as a kind of cautionary tale, I guess, for later people and the people of God. You see a bit in the Psalms, then you see it in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul drawing on the story, the Israelites' unfaithfulness in Numbers, uh, or Exodus and Numbers, actually, the judgment they receive from that as a warning to the Corinthians to, as he says, uh, what's the words he used, to take heed lest they fall. He says these stories were written to instruct us and as examples for us. And Hebrews also use these stories. Hebrews draws on an earlier reflection of these stories that comes in Psalm 95, when the author talks about this generation who didn't enter into God's rest, i.e. the guys who died in the 40 days of wandering, didn't enter into God's rest in the sense of the experience of the fulfillment of his promises in the land. And Hebrews says that happened there because of their hardness of heart. So today, Hebrews says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart so that you too don't miss out on that rest. 
So the New Testament shows us numbers is really relevant to us as a Christian because actually it regularly uses these stories to teach us and to challenge us. And then the final one, Deuteronomy, which I guess of all three is probably one people from the least difficult, maybe, maybe the one we know the best. A hugely important book because it ends the, the Torah, these five books of Moses. It starts the Deuteronomic history, these books which will flow out of it using the kind of concepts from it and sets out the way we can, I guess, interpret and understand that history. And what's going on in these chapters is the people are in these plains of Moab, ready to cross the Jordan to take the land. And Moses knows he's not going to do that. He knows he's going to die soon. These are his final words, his final speeches to the people. And in a way, it's a very forward-looking book. It's Moses looking forward to the time where they're going to be in the land. It's looking forward actually also kind of beyond that. And it's his encouragement to them, his exhortation to them, his plea to them almost actually about how they're going to live uh, in that time, how they're going to move forward into that. Well, it's forward-looking, but also a drawing from the past, drawing lessons from the journey so far for the journey the people will go on. And I think there are three key points revealed in this. One is one point affirmed time and time again in Deuteronomy is that God deserves and requires wholehearted love and wholehearted obedience from his people. And actually those two things go hand in hand. Actually, true love is expressed, love of God is expressed in obedience to him. The point was that sinful humans will always prove unable to give wholehearted love and obedience. Particularly as the book looks beyond the immediate future to further future, there's this expectation that actually humans aren't going to be able to do this thing. Humans will always be unable to do that. But the third one, God will be faithful to his people and promises. And Deuteronomy gives us the promise that one day, even the sinful human heart will be transformed to actually deal with this problem. The book kind of falls into four sections with Moses first thinking about the historical background, kind of where they've come from, <coughs> telling basically the story of Numbers or Exodus through to Numbers, Sinai through to the plains of Moab. Then the call to covenant faithfulness. It's a reminder of what this agreement between God and the people looks like. With then a third section of very specific elements of that. What are the specific outworkings? These are laws about particular areas of life, outworkings of the covenant. Before finally, a section about warnings and promises. Warnings of what happens for a lack of faithfulness. Promises of what happens when the people are faithful. Just briefly, we for time, unpack this a little bit. The historical background, as I say, kind of is really retelling the story from middle of Exodus through to uh, end of Numbers, particularly focus on that journey up to the plains of Moab with really a real reminder of the faithlessness of the people. Exactly what we've seen uh, be happening in Numbers, but also a reminder of the faithfulness of God. He particularly picks out some of the battles, as in military battles, that people had on the journey and the victories they experienced. Remember, all these things are selective narratives. Why does Moses choose that? Because he's showing the people, even though there was the unfaithfulness of your previous uh, your forefathers, God was being faithful, God was fulfilling his promises, fighting on behalf of the people. And this kind of background, this, um, <clears throat> these affirmations, I guess, are the basis from which, God, uh, from which Moses begins to call the people, this new generation, to obedience, especially fleeing idolatry and worshipping God alone. And actually right at the start of the book, he warns them that if they don't do that, it will go badly, it will end in exile, that uh, they would suffer the full consequences, I guess, of the curses of the covenant. But even there, he can't stop there. He also affirms that actually God's mercy would be shown in that point. And so that kind of background, that general call to obedience, allows him in the second section to take the story further to remind them of the covenant made at Sinai. And what's really interesting if you read through this, which is just a retelling of what happens in the middle of Exodus, is he's talking, remember, not to the people who were there, they've all died, he's talking to their children, and yet he talks to them as if they were there. He's really explicit, this happened to you, God said this to you, you heard God. What's he doing? He's saying, you are as much part of this covenant as your parents were. He's reaffirming you are still the people of God, which again, I think is about the faithfulness of God across these generations. So he's going back to the Exodus stuff, he reiterates the Ten Commandments, the, the very heart of that covenant agreement and highlights the most important commandment. 
of loving God with heart, soul and might, which is a real theme in Deuteronomy. And in the rest of the whole kind of chapter, he's again using the stories from particularly Exodus to remind them of the call to wholehearted obedience and love and to just keep affirming that and uh, calling them to it. That kind of flows into each one of these growing into each other, the third section of these very specific laws about specific things. Um, much of which actually is kind of overlapping with what we've read in previous books, the specific areas of life and the laws. What's going on here, though, is there's often a new focus on how things will work in the promised land. The laws earlier have been for life in a nomadic community on this journey, in this kind of camp. Here, actually, these laws are being transposed into what's it going to look like when you're in a settled place, which is why you get the thing about God setting his name in a particular place, the place God is going to choose to put his name. Ultimately, eventually, Jerusalem, when the temple uh, kind of gets, uh, <coughs> gets put there. And I think this makes sense within Deuteronomy. The start of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 5, tells us what Moses is doing is explaining the law. So it makes sense he's explaining the law as it's going to apply in this new context. And it just makes sense because, of course, the people are on the brink of crossing into promised land, that will be a very different situation. There's kind of a need for uh, amendments. So we talk about amendments to law as you adapt it as times or context change. That's exactly what uh, is happening through this. Some people think this whole section, these laws are structured around the Ten Commandments. They think actually that's the kind of the flow of the Ten Commandments, which as often with these things kind of works, then you get a few exceptions you think, I'm not quite sure how that does work. But it might be that at very least in the same way the Ten Commandments kind of has two halves of a kind of loving God kind of half and loving neighbour half. It does seem that that maybe is at play here because you start with laws about worship, about ritual purity, about festivals, and then you begin to move more into laws about interactions with others in society, key figures, laws for society on murder, sex, marriage, all kind of different things. And the final section is Moses, I guess, thinking more longer term now. He's looking down the timeline, acting as the prophet he is, speaking about the problems that will come in Israel's lack of obedience, the blessings that will come for obedience. Just like we got at the end of Leviticus, the whole concept of blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience comes up in chapters 27 to 28. And actually he talks about how they're to remind themselves of that when they enter into the promised land. The thing of the two groups on the two mountains and the Levites pronouncing the curses. And the final chapters are Moses' last words, this kind of song of Moses, his final words to them. And it's all about intertwining this thing of warning and promise, warning and promise all the time. Moses says, actually, it's inevitable that people won't be obedient to the covenant. It's inevitable, therefore, they will experience the curses. But also it's inevitable that God will be faithful to his promises and will bring a resolution to the problem that the people's sinfulness will cause. And most, most importantly there is where he talks about this thing of a heart change. Moses notes that actually the call has been to love God with a whole, wholeheartedly, with a whole heart. Actually, what's going to need to happen is a circumcision of a heart, a heart that is in some way changed and becomes fully dedicated to him. And actually, Moses says that's going to happen later down the story, when the people inevitably end up in exile. Actually, when God calls them back from exile, God's going to do something to circumcise hearts, to change sinful human hearts. So actually, where previously there's been this inability to stay faithful to him, actually, something will have changed. One day, God will do the deep work of dealing with the deep, deep problem, the problem that's being revealed so clearly in these books of the sinful human heart. God will do that which nicely leads us to reading Deuteronomy as a Christian. The themes we see in Deuteronomy are still very relevant to us, and much like in Numbers, they're relevant to us, but also wonderfully we get to look at them through the lens of Christ, the way they're fulfilled in Christ. It's still totally true that God is deserving of, and still requires wholehearted love and obedience from his people. We look at the doctrine of sin a little bit, we're going to see the very heart of sin, the nature of sin is a failure in our obligations as creatures to the creator and a failure to worship and to give thanks to our creator. It makes sense that we're required to give this love and obedience. Well, for us, we have Jesus' perfect love of God and perfect obedience to God credited to us, credited to our account, as it were, and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live that out ourselves. The sinful human heart 
it's still the barrier to wholehearted loving obedience. And so the, the need of every human isn't just a bit of a spring clean, but total heart transformation, which again is what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't just give us a clean slate, it gives us a clean heart, a new heart, a heart of flesh rather than a stone, a heart which has the law written on our heart. Let's use some of the prophet's language. And God has fulfilled that promise to transform human hearts. And then if you read through the New Testament, you'll spot Deuteronomy all over the place. It's, I think, the third most quoted book. Leviticus, by the way, is the sixth most quoted. More proof of how important it is. But look, Deuteronomy is the third most quoted. You get things like, in the wilderness, Jesus being tempted, he quotes Deuteronomy in responses to the devil's temptations. And that's really important. It's, it's unsurprising, really. This isn't just Jesus proof texting. It can look like he's just kind of proof texting, just you know, taking a thing, here's a few verses, I'm going to slap these in your face, as it were. But actually, of course, what's happening in the wilderness is Jesus is reliving the history of Israel. Israel had 40 years of unfaithfulness in the desert. Jesus has 40 days of faithfulness in the desert. He's reliving the story and actually he's heeding the challenge of Deuteronomy. The challenge of Deuteronomy was learn from the mistakes of the Exodus generation in the wilderness and learn from their mistakes and so live in wholehearted love and obedience. And that's what Jesus does in his temptation when he's there for 40 days. So Jesus isn't just proof texting for Deuteronomy in that um, kind of context. He's actually living out the whole message of Deuteronomy when he's resisting that temptation. Now, for example, Jesus agrees with Deuteronomy when he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 in answering the question about the most important commandment. Jesus agrees with the emphasis of Deuteronomy about that love for God, wholehearted, heart, soul, strength, might, however you translate it, um, being the most important thing. And just one other example there in the memory could draw from, Paul alludes to Deuteronomy 30, I think of the circumcised heart we talk about, the need for a changed heart, not just a kind of spring clean. In Romans 2, when he's challenging Jewish believers for their trusting in circumcision, and they're thinking, well, we're not going to come under the wrath of God because we're circumcised. They kind of viewed it almost as like a, a magic talisman that would just protect them and ward off the wrath of God. He's saying, no, that circumcision isn't what's important circumcision of the heart by the spirit i something only god can do that's what's important that's paul saying god now in christ is doing what moses said in deuteronomy god would do it would actually be the solution to all the problems we see in those earlier chapters <clears throat> and so i guess actually much like leviticus deuteronomy gives us some of the conceptual framework to understand what god has done in christ a whistle-stop tour, I know, because it's a lot to cover in one session, but I hope that begins to help us see these books are hugely relevant to us. Their overall messages are encouraging, are true for us to take. They give us so much of a framework, actually, to understand what God has done in Christ. And I think maybe it's my little tip on reading these books is always keep in mind this bigger picture. I find, you know, if you do kind of Bible through the year or whatever, because it's a chapter or two a day, we <coughs> tend to see, what's the name, see the wood, you no. Know, see the trees and miss the wood, isn't it, kind of thing. And actually, there's lots of good in the detail as well, so don't disregard the detail. But actually, I think we struggle because we get bogged down in the detail and we don't see the bigger picture. And so my hope is actually, you know, if you read through these books at some other time, having this bigger picture stuff in place, I think makes them a lot more digestible.